Hey, this is Pastor Brad at Garden City Church. I just wanted to say thank you for coming into this space and listening to our podcast. You know, our desire as a church is that we would learn how to love and lead like Jesus because we believe that he knows how to love people best and how to lead people best. If you'd like to know more information about who we are as a church, you can visit GardenCityBMT.com. God bless and have a great day. Well, I noticed this last week on social media that a bunch of Christians were upset about this big thing that took place this last week. If you were following along at any capacity of the recall election, and many Christians were wondering, God, what are you doing? God, why is this happening? God, what in the world? I thought we had momentum. I thought this thing was happening. Many people were excited about this idea of recalling the governor, and it was in that place where you start to identify where your allegiance lies. And I say that very, um, with, with very much respect because I know that there are also many Christians who are praying in the midst of what's happening, but I also know that there were Christians who were so hung up on these recall results that it left them wondering if God was truly even in the details. And I know that it's kind of those ideas that we can be upset with the world, but we shouldn't be surprised by it. Let's just be honest about that up front. We can be upset with the results of the things that we think as Christians we should be seen as a result of the culture and the society that we live in, but we can't be surprised by it. Because we know from Genesis 3 that this is a world that has fallen. It is, it is a world that is sinful. And like we mentioned last week, if we believe that we are living in the promised land, then we will treat everything outside of it as a threat. But if we believe that we are living in exile, we will treat everyone else with compassion. And so I believe that this is a cultural moment that we have to come to grips with and to come to the terms with the reality that I truly believe, that we believe as a church that we are living in exile rather than in the promised land. And as a result of that, we believe that there is more for us that God has than what the American dream can offer when he says, your kingdom is mine. That essentially once we see God come and establish his rule and reign here on earth, that we will also be ruling and reigning with him. That he is giving us authority in his kingdom that we might use it rightly to govern the world that he has created. And so when we look at the book of Daniel, I think that there is some, there is a lot of similarity to what's happening in our culture today where we can believe that there is a reality of exile that we have to come to grips with. As we saw throughout this first chapter, there are many different ways in which culture tries to preside on this identity of a person that tries to indoctrinate them into believing something that maybe they themselves don't actually believe. And so as we look at this, it's kind of like um, when, you, when you got Christmas presents, maybe as a younger person and maybe for you kids, you remember that Christmas when you ask for that one thing. You don't care about what any of the other gifts were. You don't care what was in the, in, the, in the stocking. You don't care what any other family member got you. If you got that one thing, you would have been totally fine with it. And what happened is you got a, a different version of the thing you were asking for. Instead of getting this brand of a shoe, your mom went to Payless. You guys remember that place? Yeah. You remember Payless, like school shopping? No, mom, I want the Nikes. Well, Payless, they've got a version that looks just like it. It's just a logo. I'm like, no, mom, you don't get it. It's, it. It is a logo. It is the logo. 
It is very much, in fact, the thing that I want. And so as you open it up, you know it's a box and it looks like a shoe box and you're excited about it and then you see the word pay less and you realize that it wasn't, a, um, it wasn't Osiris or Nike or something like that. It was Air Walk. And you're like, what is this? Why did you get me this thing? This doesn't make sense. And so when we read scripture and we say that God has a plan for our future and for us to thrive and to live out in a world that is something that he created for us to enjoy, and then when things are hitting the ceiling and you're wondering like, whoa, what is happening? God, I thought you were giving us this amazing thing. And he's like, just wait. Because what we think in the temporal, God is thinking about in the eternal. What we think God wants to give us now is nothing compared to what he wants to give to us in the future. So when we look through the book of Daniel, we essentially see this book broken into two pieces. Chapters one through six, we see this biographical nature that is tracing Daniel's witness as someone who is a follower of God, yet he is also in exile in the royal court of Babylon. In chapter 7 through 12, we see a record of visions of God's purposes for the future. And so what's happened in our culture when we look through the book of Daniel is that many see it as a book of prophecy. They see it as a book of history. When in fact, the Hebrew Bible actually puts the book of Daniel in the apocalyptic literature much like the book of Revelation. And so it helps us to understand this book easier, to not think so linear about this book, that one event is happening after another, that it is this timeline of events that are chronological in nature, but that's not the case. Because our Western culture likes to portray this linear, like I am moving forward, there is a wall, that is a problem, how do I figure out the solution? That's that linear approach to the book of Daniel, but that's not how the book of Daniel is written. So if you think about like your current TV show or a recent movie you saw, typically within the first season, you're given this really broad stroke of a, of, a, of a painting. You're given this idea of who the characters are. There's a little bit of character development, but by season two, you're going back 10 years, you're going back 20 years, and there's even further character development, and that's the way for us to be sucked into those things because you wonder like, well, how did it start with this apocalyptic type thing? And then you go back you know, to season two and it shows you what life was like before the apocalypse, and then season three and four and season 10 just keeps going and they don't know when to end sometimes. That's kind of the idea of a linear story. It's like, when do I stop? I don't know. If, you're, if you've ever watched the, the show Lost, you know what I'm talking about. That's a problem. That's the the reason that, you know, shows need to stop after a few seasons. So when we read this apocalyptic literature, like the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation, we cannot see the events unfold as literal and linear because Revelation does not begin with the end of the story. They are like snapshots into events that are all jumbled to give you imagery and perspective that helps you navigate through the book better. As it's been said about prophecy in apocalyptic literature, it cannot mean for us what it did not mean for them. And so it is with Daniel. We see him take us from beginning to the end of a sequence of events, but then he returns to the beginning to describe them again, this time in different terms from different perspectives. And so throughout the book of Daniel, we will keep coming to the same general outline of world history, yet we are presented with different viewpoints and different imagery. 
if you've noticed in our culture, the amount of information that we have of our, at our fingertips is unrelenting. It's this idea of being able to look up information that we don't ultimately have the answer to in that moment. No longer do you have to look into an encyclopedia. Do you guys know what that is? Kids are like, what's an encyclopedia? It's like that 75,000 volume set, like from like A to Z on every single thing you could imagine. When what we have now is Wikipedia, which did you know, when I was in high school, Wikipedia was not a source that we could actually cite in our, in our, uh, in our what am I saying? Reports. reports, thank you, in our reports. Like we couldn't cite Wikipedia because it was so new and people were freaking out and losing money because Wikipedia is like, oh, let's just put everything on the internet. Why not? I've heard recently that Wikipedia is a source you can cite, so that's great. Praise God that, you know, as frontiers, we weren't able to do that, but now you can. You're welcome. Many in our culture are convinced that they have an answer to everything. If you don't know the answer, you can simply look it up on your phone super quick. You can ask Siri any question on the face of the planet, but you'll only get like two or three of the same responses each time. And it's no wonder we don't know what to believe anymore. Because there's so much information out there. You can, anyone can start a blog. Anyone can start reporting news. If you have a phone in front of you, you can start reporting news. And you can give it any twist and any bend you want. We have all this information at our fingertips, and yet it's at the same time where people don't know what to believe anymore. And so not having an answer to immediate questions is viewed as a weakness, and there are parts in this book that we will not be able to fully understand. There are things within Daniel where we cannot fully comprehend what is happening. In fact, Daniel himself didn't even fully understand what was going on. There was some contemplation. He was wrestling with this idea of what, what visions and dreams God was giving to him. In fact, at the end of Daniel, in chapter 12, verse 8, he says, I heard, but I did not understand. I heard what was going on, but I didn't understand it. There are many people who are eager to say, I understand when only a few actually do. And so we should not be ashamed of admitting that we don't have the answers to all of life's questions. But what we do know about this book as we look at it is we see the central focus of Daniel's prophecies in the incarnation, death, and resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. As it's been said, he is the stone who shatters the kingdoms of this world in pieces and becomes a mountain that fills its void. His kingdom has already come and yet it awaits the final conclusion when the final antichrist will be revealed and be overwhelmed by the coming of Christ. So Daniel is not a book of history necessarily that's written in advance. When it is treated that way, there is a tendency to engage in speculation rather than in stimulation. To my point, if you notice, in our culture, anytime there is a giant catastrophic event from 9-11 to Hurricane Katrina to recent events in Afghanistan to COVID itself, there is all this speculation that the end of the world is near. The end of the world. It's the end of the world. Could this be it? Could he be the Antichrist? Could this event be the thing that ushers the rapture of the church into reality? Where the issue is when more sermons are personal speculation about the end of the world rather than to stimulate a life of obedience so that through that life of obedience you may be ready for the end of the world. Jesus introduced the beginning of the end, the already and not yet of the kingdom of God. 
And so it is until the kingdom comes fully on earth as it is in heaven, we will continue to have days described like the end of the world. Jesus quotes from Isaiah who describes the fall of Babylon to describe the fall of Jerusalem. And so it's in this way that this apocalyptic language serves a metaphorical purpose, which is to describe one moment in history that happens over and over again until the ultimate fulfillment, which is why every generation before ours and quite frankly, every generation after ours will continue to wonder if this is the end of the world. Every generation will have their own experience of Babylon, but it all leads up to a culminating moment. As Tim Mackey says in the Bible Project, this is why every generation can see themselves as living in the drama of the book of Revelation. Often this verbiage is used to stir fervor in the hearts of Jesus' people, but this phrase is not only for this generation, because every generation has been living in the end times since the resurrection of Christ. And so it is not through speculation, but through stimulation into a life of obedience that readies our hearts and allows others to see the readiness of our hearts for when that time does actually come. But the first thing we notice here in Daniel is that these men and a lot of other young men and women were deported. They were captive to Babylon. In fact, this deportation effort was not done without God's knowledge. This deportation is something that God actually told the people of Israel that this would happen if they broke covenant with, with the Lord. Ezekiel 14 says that even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were there, their righteousness would save no one but themselves says the sovereign Lord. As surely as I live, says the Lord, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were there, they wouldn't be able to save their own sons or daughters. They alone would be saved by their righteousness. Leviticus 26, and I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. I think that this goes even further to prove the reality of the exile that we are living in because God specifically told his people, if you live in a certain way, you will be exiled. You will be taken captive by another foreign people. Even in Deuteronomy chapter four, the Lord ultimately seems to threaten his own people with exile because of their unfaithfulness to the covenant that was established at Mount Sinai. In fact, the way the Babylonians were able to destroy them so easily was because they were essentially given the keys to the kingdom. So here in Daniel 1, where we read that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. But it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar who understood the strategy before someone else before him knew what was going on. In 2 Kings chapter 20, it's King Hezekiah the Bible says in verse 13 that he received the Babylonian envoys and showed them everything in his treasure houses. Second Kings 20 says that he showed them the silver, the gold, the spices, and the, ar the aromatic oils. He also took them to see his armory and showed them everything in his royal treasuries. If you ever wanted to know how to defeat an enemy, you bring in the enemy and show them where everything's at. That's essentially what King Hezekiah was doing when he was welcoming the Babylonian empire. 
He's like, oh, you wanna see all of our treasury? It's over in that room over there. You wanna see our armory and all of the different technology and everything that we're working on? It's over in that room over there. You wanna see where our people are? You wanna see where our animals are, where our feed is? He showed them every single door and opened it himself. In verse 13, it says, there was nothing in the palace or kingdom that King Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked him, what did those men want? Hezekiah said, well, they came from this distant land of Babylon. And then Isaiah asked, well, what did they see in your palace? Hezekiah replies, they, they saw everything. I showed them everything I own, all of, my, all of my royal treasuries. And then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, listen to this message from the Lord. The time is coming when everything in your palace, all the treasures stored up by your ancestors until now, will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your very own sons will be taken away into exile. They will become eunuchs who will serve in the palace of Babylon's king. That's where Ashpenaz came from. He became a eunuch in the king's court, but he was originally from this place in Judah. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your very own sons will be taken away into exile. They'll become eunuchs who will serve the Babylon's king. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, this message you have given me from the Lord is good. For the king was thinking, at least there will be peace and security during my lifetime. He was only concerned about what was happening in his culture. He was not concerned about the future generation of Judah. He was not concerned about whether or not this was an enemy or an ally. He was wondering, great, awesome, cool. Babylon is a buddy of mine. I've shown them everything so that if something happens to us, they will know how to fight for us and what things to protect. What he didn't realize is that the very ally he had actually became his enemy. This was a battle of the gods, essentially. Babylon just walked right out with anything and anyone they wanted. And it seemed like the God of Israel was defeated. But this is not a game that God plays. God is not competing with anyone and that's sometimes how it feels like today. We feel like we're competing between God and culture's false gods. But what we know and what we gather from the book of Daniel, which we'll see over a long period of time, is that God is very aware of what he's doing. God is very aware of what is happening in the culture at this very moment. You see, the dynasty and the religious center of Judah were eradicated, and it gets even worse because the severity of displacement not only extended from the gold and the glitter, but it actually added to the Babylonian empire the best and the brightest young minds from Judah. Things could not possibly be worse because they were already the worst. Judah's king and kingdom had been conquered, and with it, the era of Jerusalem as a superpower, as a geopolitical force had come to an end. And so in this devastation, we see the defeat of Judah and the deportation of some of their people. Regardless of being taken captive by a people who destroyed their home, they know that what was happening in their exile was ultimately God's will. That's a hard thing to grasp at times. When we're living, if this is truly a place that we believe is exile, it's hard to imagine what God is doing, and yet it is some of the most faithful and trusted soldiers in the army of God who believe that God is at work in this and that he's not unaware of what's happening. Followers of Jesus know the scriptures when it says that this world is not our home because of sin and death. We are going 
and looking for a place we've never been to, but it is a place that God is preparing for us. And so as Christians in the West, it can feel like sometimes that our king and his kingdom are far away, that Jesus and his reign seem to appear as things of an ancient past or things that will, that will be eventually in the future, but we struggle to see it as a part of the now. And yet what we see in the book of Daniel that we can glean from is that God is still at work and it gives us a confidence in the possibility to remain faithful to Christ and to produce fruit in our life work. We know that there is hope in our crisis. What we know about this is that even though the reign of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian empire took them captive, God is the only one who is moving the wheel of history to accomplish his eternal ends. Any personal trial you've ever been through, the pastor always says to be patient in your trial. You quote James 1.2, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. You quote James 1.12, blessed is the person who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And you're reminded over and over and over again, but when that trouble first hits, it doesn't feel as if God is in control of moving the wheel of history to accomplish his eternal end. But it is the case with whatever you're dealing with, whatever your struggle is, whether inside, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, God is aware of what's happening in your life and in your body. In fact, he created you. He knows what he's doing. If there is a situation outside of your body and it's affecting your family and it's a financial thing or it's a work thing, there is hope to be had in that crisis because God is at work moving the wheel of history to accomplish his eternal purpose. And so it is when you feel deported, in a sense, from this society that God will do his most amazing work. They go, from being, they go from being deported to indoctrinated. They're given this literature and these cultural essays on life in Babylon. Their schooling and their education came from a Babylonian perspective rather than a Jew, uh, Jerusalem or Judah perspective. Not only were they indoctrinated with this lifestyle of how you must live according to Babylonian culture, but they were also given Babylonian names as a form of indoctrination also, for Daniel, he was given the name Belteshazzar. Daniel means God is my judge, where the name Belteshazzar means may Bel protect his life. And what you notice about each of these names as they come up on the screen, you'll notice that each of them is a reciprocation of the false God that Babylon, that Babylon had served. So Daniel, his Jerusalem Jewish name, is God is my judge, but Belteshazzar, his Babylonian name, means may Bel protect his life. God is not your judge anymore. Bel, the God of Babylon, will protect you. For Hananiah, he was given the name Shadrach. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious, but Shadrach means Aku, another god in Babylon, is exalted. The correlation there. For Mishael, he was given the name Meshach, Mishael means who is what Elohim is. Well, the name Meshach means who is what Aku is. For Azariah, he was given the name Abednego. Azariah means Yahweh is my helper. Abednego means the servant of Nebo. 
Each of these men were born with names that honor the God of the Jews, but they were given names that rather honor the gods of Babylon. It was a direct correlation of how, of how Babylon wanted these young men to worship while in captivity. They tried to strip them of their identity, but only can an identity be stripped from you if it is not first secure in Jesus. This is what was happening with Daniel and his buddies. They were given these names, they were stripped from what they were given at birth and said, no, your name is not no longer God is my judge, it is may Bell protect your life. Because we don't want you to believe anymore that God is truly the protector of your life and the judge at the end of the world. We believe that it is Bell who does that thing. Some people even think that Christians are trying to indoctrinate people into following Jesus because we live in a world full of indoctrination. It's all around us. It's everywhere. You can't escape it. And yet at the same time, like I mentioned at the beginning, we cannot be surprised by it. They don't serve the God that we serve. This is not the God that they are following. And even sometimes, recently, people have tried to label Christians as these people who tried to indoctrinate someone else into following Jesus, but the difference is that the God of the Bible does not force, coerce, or subliminally message you into trickery or bribery. God, as we know from the Bible, is a God of patience. He is willing that none should perish, but that all would reach repentance. However, he doesn't open the door without first being let in. He'll keep knocking, but he won't break the door down. That's the thing about God. The Bible says that God is drawing people to himself, meaning that he will respect your position, but he will be persistent about getting you to follow after him. And so these guys are still able to honor God with their service, despite being indoctrinated by another culture. How were these men so secure in their identity? They already had it, and they already lived in it because of who God told them they were rather than what they allowed culture to cause them to believe they should do. Even in Christian culture, not, not, not just society or, or culture in the world or social media, but even within Christian culture, there are things that you try to be identified by or what other Christians will try to indoctrinate other Christians about. Have you noticed that most of the debating and the fighting is amongst Christians? Well, I, I believe it in, in this particular way, or I believe this about this particular theology. Well, I believe this about the culture. I believe this about this. I'm not gonna get into that because you know what I'm talking about. But you know the reality of what matters most. And so the only way that you risk losing your identity is only come, it only comes from first not being secure in who God calls you to be. We only risk losing our identity when we are seeking approval from God while also seeking approval from man. They're deported, they're indoctrinated, and they're dedicated. Not dedicated to the Lord, we'll see that in, in a little bit later, but they're dedicated to learning the culture. They served their captors. Christians today seem to be some of the most angry people in not wanting to learn the culture of what's happening around them. I'm not talking about anyone specific, but just in general, there is this idea that Christians have become very angry, rightful people. And Daniel and his buddies are showing us that there is a way in which you can still live in the culture, you can still learn about the culture, you can still serve the enemy 
whoever you think that is, we know the true enemy does not, we, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities. And yet they were still able to serve their captors. And so as we see these names that they're given, they don't make a fuss about it. They don't start a petition to have their names changed back. They let this name-changing ceremony roll off their shoulders and they continue to honor and worship God as they always have. And in honoring God, they were also serving the emperor. They don't make this about themselves and how they were given Babylonian names. Can you believe the name I was given? Can you believe they're mocking our God, Yahweh? Yeah, like that's just a given. Like, shouldn't we understand that about culture and society? Actually, yeah, I I can believe that that's happening because those in the realm of worldliness do not adhere to the obedience of following a God they don't know. Okay, so then how will they know? They will know by how we conduct our life in front of them, even more specifically, how we conduct ourselves through trouble and tragedy. First Peter 2 talks about this idea, about how we can learn culture, how we can be respectful and honorable while not giving up our identity in Christ. First Peter 2, 9 through 12 and 17, but you are not like that for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, you are a holy nation. You are God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, but now you have received God's mercy. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners, as aliens and as strangers, to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. Respect everyone and love the family of believers. Fear God and respect the king. And so it is that people outside the family of God will come into the family of God when they see our conduct as a living sacrifice. When they see our lives lived out in the midst of tragedy and trouble, they will then see plainly where our identity is and who the God is that we serve. There's this saying that says, smooth seas never made for a skilled sailor. If you wanna learn how to sail, and you wanna know how to properly adjust everything on the boat and how to make sure that you've got wind direction and things like that, you don't continue to just allow the smooth sea to dictate when you take the boat out. You take the boat out of passion and you go and do your thing and when the wind hits and when the storm hits, you figure out how to adjust in that moment. And so it is with a, with a person who is following after Christ. We can't believe that God will bless us when our life is only good and perfect, but because of our passion and our love and our desire for obeying God, we live our life and we enjoy it. And we allow ourselves to not be taken captive by what someone else wants to identify us in, but what we are already in as a chosen people of Christ. And so it is with that that we cannot allow ourselves to believe that we are a skilled sailor in the Christian waves of life, if you will, 
because it's the tumultuous moment where you have to anchor down and depending on who or what your anchor is will allow you to become a more skilled sailor. So they're deported, they're indoctrinated, they're dedicated to learning the culture, but at the same time, their dedication just means that they're owning the moment, that they're allowing themselves to be immersed in what's happening around them, but they don't lose their devotion to God. They kept their vows with the Lord not to defile themselves. And notice in the name changing, they didn't defile themselves. They didn't even define that for themselves. They allowed someone else to define that. But what they did is they remained secured in who they are as Daniel, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. This is not the book of Belteshazzar. This is the book of Daniel. And it is in that identity that Daniel is writing this biography about himself saying, yeah, they gave us these names, but we didn't adhere to it. We respected the fact that like, I I mean, I guess if it were reversed, we would tell people as Jerusalem took them captive that we want them to have names after our own God. And so there was a level of respecting and honoring the system while not losing their devotion to the Lord. And so Daniel asks the eunuch in charge over them not to eat the meat that was brought to the king's royal table. They asked for a vegetable and water diet. And there's actually quite quite some significance in this because the Babylonian tradition, as it is with their gods, is that their devotion to their false gods was so genuine that they gave of their first fruits to these false gods. Even the meat that was meant to be at the king's table and even the wine that was meant to be at the king's table. Because they knew where the food went before it got to the table, these men were able to honor the Lord better. But the only way they knew the Babylonian culture was to learn it. They dedicated themselves to knowing and understanding the Babylonian captivity culture they were living in, which allowed them to know that the meat wasn't just coming directly from the animal, but that it was first sacrificed to the idols, and then it came to the king's table. And because they understood culture, and because they were aware of how things worked around there, Daniel said, okay, this is where we draw a line. Like, I'm not going to defile myself I'm actually gonna only take a diet of veggies and water. This is actually where the Daniel fast came from, if you've heard of it before. It's this, um, this very popular thing among evangelical Protestants in North America to capitalize Christianity. Oh, well, Daniel ate vegetables and water. Like, let's make a diet out of it and call it ours, you know? Like, and that's what people do. They call this the Daniel fast. It's a partial fast that... Uh, removes meat, wine, and other rich foods, and to avoid those in favor of eating only vegetables and drinking only water for typically three weeks in order to be more sensitive to God. And so it is when we see Daniel asking Ashpenaz for permission to avoid eating the food sacrificed to idols, Ashpenaz becomes afraid. The one job he had to make sure was done is that the minds and the bodies of these young men were fit for a future kingdom. And Daniel comes like, hey, we're not gonna eat that food. We're not gonna drink that wine. Can you just give us vegetables and water? And Ashpenaz, I'm sure, is imagining like you're gonna die off of that. Like you, you, you cannot sustain a healthy diet and also work with your mind and with your body for this future kingdom. But God was at work in this eunuch Ashpenaz and used the humility and compassion of Daniel to win him to God. 
as it says in verse nine, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief eunuchs. So if God was moving the heart of a pagan official, how much more does he work in the heart of one who believes in him? So they honored God with their bodies and they were still able to respect their captors. And according to verse 17, it was God who gave knowledge and understanding to Daniel and his friends. But I'm sure that the king and the eunuchs took credit for the knowledge and the understanding that they had. And yet it is apart from God's work in our heart how we cannot walk in holiness unless we remain in Christ. John 15, four says, remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Verse five continues, yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So to abide or to remain in Christ means that you have come to the Lord with your guilt and with your sin and you've left it on the altar of praise because it is a life that is surrendered to worshiping God even in exile. But we know that there's hope in this hostility that we're facing. We know there is hope, not hope that a policy can give to us, but hope that a person has already given to us. When we look to the cross, when, we're, when we are reminded of what Jesus has done, it gives us a perspective of saying, I am still in control, even when it doesn't feel like it. Psalm 1 is a great example of someone who can apply living and abiding in God in their life. It is a way to understand how to conduct yourself even in the midst of exile. And this is truly how we will see a difference in our nation if that's what we desire, which I hope we do. We wanna be an example. We want to be people who give an example to others to replicate because we're not replicating ourselves. Our authority is not our own. We are replicating, hopefully, the desires that Jesus has given to us as we are students under the master. So when we ask people if they want to come and follow Jesus and based on our conduct, they see our love, they see our compassion, we're giving a defense for our faith with compassion, as 1 Peter 3 says, they'll see it as a way for them to also live this life as well. Psalm 1 is just six verses long. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. But the wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It is that tree that is planted, but it says that it yields fruit in its season. We want our season of producing fruit to be every single day. We just want to produce fruit, more fruit, more fruit, more fruit. But fruit can only produce fruit in a particular season of the year. And so it is in our belief that we will produce a fruit. But does the fruit, or or rather, does the tree grow weary of it producing fruit? It's like, oh, where's the fruit? It's supposed to be, like, where's the fruit? 
If, if the tree is not producing fruit, you chop the tree down and you get rid of it. It's like, well, that didn't work. Let's do it again. And the tree starts to notice, and I don't think that the tree is ever contemplating its own life and wondering like, Lord, am I gonna produce fruit today? It just happens. Because it's not consumed by whether or not it's going to actually bring something to fruition. And yet because of the culture that we are surrounded in, we want to see results all the time. And when we don't see the results we're looking for, we wonder, oh man, is God even in the details? It's like, yeah, he is. But just remember that you only produce fruit in a season. It may not be this season, but what is happening in that season? What's happening is your root system is starting to grow. It's gaining capacity to be more rooted so that when the fruit does produce off of the tree, it goes and blesses everyone else. It becomes a blessing to other people. But it can only become a blessing to other people when its root system is starting to see strength outside of its season. Because a tree is always growing. It's just not always producing fruit, but it's preparing itself for that season. So there's a season right now where maybe you are producing that fruit and you're seeing God bless it and God bless it and God bless it, but maybe you're not seeing fruit and it's causing you to grow weary and it's causing you to wonder, am I doing the right thing? It's the patience of being faithful in the little things that God will allow you to then become faithful in the bigger things. We immediately just wanna jump to being faithful in the big thing like, Oh man, like God, just give me something big so I can prove myself. He says, well, the way to prove yourself is by being faithful in the little things. You wanna produce fruit? Continue to read your Bible. You wanna produce fruit? Continue to be a witness. You wanna produce fruit? Continue to stand for the kingdom of God. You wanna produce fruit? Pray. You wanna produce fruit? Be a disciple. You wanna produce fruit? Find community. Be vulnerable in your family. As brothers and sisters in this unit, some of us will produce fruit in other seasons of life where we don't allow ourselves to compete with someone else. and like, why am I not producing fruit? Be thankful that the fruit is being produced in that person's life in that moment. And I guarantee you that with that compassion and with that love and with that joy for that other person's season, they will, they will also be able to replicate that in your season of fruit as well. So know that even in exile, God is doing a work. That even in your trouble and tragedy, it is a way for you to remain devoted to the Lord and yet dedicated for other people to see your good works and to honor your Father in heaven. As we come to the communion table this morning, if you're new to Garden City, we partake of communion every single Sunday because Jesus told his disciples in the upper room, do this in remembrance of me. We don't wanna just remember once a month, we want to remember every single Sunday. Because every single Sunday, we know that from our previous week and leading into our next, that there will be a time when we don't remember. That there is a place in our heart where we have to come to grips with the reality of remembering the cross, of remembering the sacrifice, of remembering his birth and of his death and of his resurrection and of his ascension. And it's in that place at the communion table where we get to partake together as a church, united under the only name by which we can be saved. The book of Acts says it's the name of Jesus. And so we come under that umbrella, we come under that name of Jesus, and we say, Lord, my allegiance is to you. Help me to remain devoted to you in exile. And that's a place where we find hope in a hostile world at the communion table.
If you don't have your elements, we're gonna pray. And in a few moments, you can grab those elements. Partake with your family. Partake with those around you. If you came by yourself, celebrate and partake together with someone sitting next to you. This is a family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, as the Bible says, but maybe some aren't brothers and sisters in Christ. I can't just assume that everyone in the room is a follower of Jesus. Just because you go to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than what C.S. Lewis says, that you being in a garage makes you a car. The reality is that we have to come to grips with our sin and with our guilt, we can come before the Lord and he says, you don't need to clean up your life in order for me to do something. The, the, the doing that I do is cleaning it up for you. And it's coming to him and surrendering to him in communion what you are truly remembering. Because only the person who is a follower of Jesus can truly remember and be thankful for what Jesus has done. So it's in this place today where you can become a follower of Jesus if you are not, but also know that there is a place for you here at Garden City in this family, in a small group, in some sort of an environment where you want to grow. This is your season of growth for every single one of us. Even if we're not producing fruit, even if we are producing fruit, it is a season of growth because that's what God desires for you. Because as you're planted close by that stream of living water, you will start to see the results. You will start to see by your faithfulness of being connected to the source that the, the tree that you're abiding in and the water that you're next to will yield its fruit in its season. Trust on God's timing rather than your own. Let's pray together. God, we're mindful of the book of Daniel this morning as as they were deported to Babylon, as they were indoctrinated with the culture and the literature of that nation, as they were dedicated to knowing the culture, they remained devoted to you. It was because their identity was already in God, it was already in you, that allowed them to experience and to wonder what the culture around them was up to. And understanding that Babylonian culture actually made them better followers and better representatives of you. And so we are reminded in our own exile this morning that you are creating in us better representatives of yourself. We're reminded in your word that tells us that we are ambassadors, which means that we are representatives of God in a foreign place. Help us to have compassion and love and grace and mercy as the representatives in a foreign land. As we work through this book of Daniel, would you cause our hearts to grow and to be strengthened, which can only come from the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit can only do that if we are willing to allow the Holy Spirit in. And so I pray if you desire that this morning that you would call upon the Holy Spirit to enter your life as Jesus calls him the helper. He is here to help you become holy. You cannot become holy on your own. You must rest in the holiness of Christ. And as the helper helps you to become holy, you rest in the Holy Spirit's direction for your life. Don't navigate these waters alone. Get in a boat with the community. and remember to trust in your anchor.